I'm tired of Earth Day. I'm tired of these self-righteous environmentalists, these white bourgeois liberals who think the only thing wrong with this country is there aren't enough bicycle paths. People trying to make the world safe for their Volvos. Narrow, unenlightened self-interest doesn't impress me. Besides, there is nothing wrong with the planet. Nothing wrong with the planet. The planet is fine. The people are f***ed. Difference. Difference. The planet is fine. Welcome back to Hoosier Sophisticate here on WGNU920AM.com. WGNU. 9.20 a.m. on the radio It's WGNU, Craig. Hoosiersophisticate.com. Just letting you know. Get there. There's merchandise there. There's Go there. There's there's podcast links there. There's funny stuff, there's too. There's former interviews. Soon there's going to be videos of Steve and I doing acoustic versions of women's pop songs. Oh, that's going to be good. Oh, it's gonna, it's going to tips. be the springboard into our just... Empire. Is that in the nude or not in the nude? Well, if you play your cards right, there'll be. I can only imagine. Do a live performance. There'll be a Patreon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll do a little live. So you were saying that you wanted to. First off, this second hour is brought to you by Roof Lifetime Roofing. Roof, roof. I was a little eager. I'm sorry. Don't look at me like that. Com. Three one four eight zero 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 four two six. Oh, and we forgot to mention something, but it brings me to this point about lifetime roofing they really take care of your dogs during these storms because dogs don't like storms you know what else takes care of dogs during these storms cbd you know what else takes care of dogs insurance <laughs> james carlton will insure your pet <laughs> oh my are we kidding right now are we pulling this dogs all together are bringing the, they're like the rug in the big lebowski they are pulling the whole room together that's a great analogy yeah let's let's end it let's, let's go we're going to join we're going to join chris you can listen to dead air you're welcome <laughs> No, but uh, at LifetimeSTL.com, people probably had leaking problems. Maybe they had a tree fall on their roof. We partner up with tree removal uh, services. We as in Lifetime. And uh, so they'll help you out in any way, shape, or form. LifetimeSTL.com. Check them out. Give them a call. I'll tell you what. I've referred them online so many times. Of course, I, I was in a referral network with, with the owner for a long time. They just – they. If they feel good to recommend, because they're never going to make me look bad. Yep. They always go above and beyond when they go out there. If you have any roof, if, if you're just curious if your roof needs some yeah. help, give them a call. 314-800-0426. They will happily send someone out there. If they have, if they don't want to get up there, they'll just fly their little nifty drone. <laughs> You've heard the commercial. You've heard the commercial. They have a drone, and they will even get on your Heck, roof. Heck, they'll even get up there. They will. <laughs> hey, Lifetime SDL. Yeah. By the way, this brought roof, to you roof. by uh, the guy who just chided me for my James Carlton commercial uh, on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a regular uh, what does chide mean? Chuck Woolery. <laughs> we'll be back in two and two. <laughs> Is that that guy? I don't know. He's so good. I'm just making words up. Hey, okay, so we had streaming picks, and I watched your streaming pick. You used to be Plowsy, was the streaming pick guy, but your streaming picks have been strong. And oh, I gotta tell you, a couple weeks ago. That Apache Warrior, my friend. Ooh, Nellyville. I was standing up in front of my TV watching it. You know, like when you go to, you're like, I'm going to get up and go to the next room, and something happens as you're getting up, and you're like, well, I can't. I'm not going to look away right now. And then you realize you've been standing in your living room for 10 minutes watching yeah, 100%. this. 100%. It's, it's a show that stops you in your tracks. Great way to put I, it. I was, I was lying on the couch, like, just glued to it. Um, and not much has captivated me that it stopped you in way. your tracks when you were laying on the couch? Well, I'm crazy. Pay, I don't know if you knew this, but we are hurling through space at about a half a million miles an hour. <laughs> good point. That's a good point. 
So anyway, um, no, it, it's it's what's interesting about it, and it's kind of a tough one to talk about because I want everybody to see it, and I don't want to spoil anything. I know. You can't. Um, you didn't spoil anything. It's gripping. I don't think we can, but it gave me such profound respect for our buddy that's sitting over here on the end of the I table. Know. Oh, nice. Nice. Matt Reeser. Matt Reeser. Sound of a Huey right there. That's a Huey. He knows that by the sound. Yeah, I knew that, too. You didn't? Oh, that's <laughs> terrifying. So, what's the Huey? First off, what's, which the one's UH the Huey? one Iroquois from the 1960s. Is that Carrie Passengers? Uh, no. or it does. Yeah, okay. it's the t- is it a dual prop helicopter? You see, no, it's just it's a single one. It's a big boy though. Yeah, it's, a, it's it was the workhorse. They had like thousands of them. Is it the one that got shot down in Mash? No. <laughs> that, that would have been the Korean it's the War. The only so one they the they still use from the yeah. Vietnam era and too. The, the last one just had a flight like last like couple months ago. Or this something thing like shakes that. too like crazy. Really? Like it just oh, feels like it's going to fall apart when you're there. Now, as an Apache pilot, can you fly all the other helicopters too? No, much? just the ones you're trained in. Uh, yeah. But I mean, the helicopter's kind of a helicopter. So, I got out of the out of the, out of the Apache and flew a Blackhawk uh, for probably five six months, and it it's pretty same similar mechanics, but just different feel. Now, is the Blackhawk cockpit? I I was I thought I knew about the Apache. I know that it's a bad machine. I know that everybody oh. that's ever come in contact with it or has been around it, it always speaks of its prowess, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that it was a dual pilot. Me neither. Yep. You know, tandem, so that was seat. that was interesting to me because uh, you know on this documentary you could see into or you can see from the um, the gunner's camera. Yes. You can you know, and I was amazed at how these two work in unison. So how does that how does that work exactly? I mean, it, are they each controlling a different? Yeah, it depends on the mission. So the the front seat can fly and do anything in the, that the back seat can. Okay. So the only thing that's different about the front seat is the sighting system that they're that they're using their hands on. So typically the person in the back will be flying, and the guy in the front or the woman in front will be steering the sighting system because you have to fire the laser to shoot the missile or to look at look at pictures more sure, yeah. clearly. They can zoom in and, and see what you're looking at. That so, was the wild thing about yeah. the documentary, too, seeing what they saw. And there were two different views. What was it? Infrared and night vision. They kept switching. Yeah, from- some of that stuff. There's a little artistic license taken with some of those scenes. But, okay. uh, but I mean, there's – you can <clears> – <throat> so there's a part in the movie where, where she's wearing goggles. Yeah. And you see her, what's that? And he's yeah. wearing FLIR in the backseat. Yes. So, FLIR. They kept saying the two, FLIR. That's one of the struggles is you can't reach over and touch somebody and say, hey, look over here. It's over there. Yeah, that was I'm interesting. He didn't. He, he didn't, didn't see. see or she, did he not see it? Yeah, she saw so it. Off she to saw the, all the trick because it, it picks up on red light the most. Okay, that's the spectrum of light that it picks up on. So yeah. red light, like tracer fire, red tracers. It's super bright. That I mean, was insane. Yeah, and they look like basketballs going through the, through the goggles. I mean, that is the tracer rounds. Well, oh, from that. It, well, and that was interesting to oh, me. I think rounds. I I think I understood this correctly, but it sounded like one of the pilots was saying that they were going off of of maps in that initial mission from like the first Gulf War. Yeah, that was the tactic, though. Why? That was their tactic. Well, because th- I mean, it's Iraq. You don't have maps. We don't have satellites yeah, all the time. But at the time, it was like, well, they just. I mean, I don't know if they were the exact same maps. Sure, or old maps. But it certainly was the same tactics that they used in 1991. Interesting. Okay. So what what, what that means is like they launch an entire company of aircraft. The 18 is right. in this one. Yeah. Versus which, which not all 18 made the flight. Yeah. Because the they didn't set up the fueling and everything exactly. ahead of them. And so between this this particular scenario and then there was another one where two, where two guys got shot down and taken POW. That was the kind of the, the turning point where they're like, wait a minute, we need to just wipe the slate clean and change our tactics completely. So I was watching their, their video, and I'm like, man, they're going really slow. Yeah. God, what are they doing? And yeah. I was like, because when I deployed, we were going 100, 100 knots, you know, flying as fast as we could. Oh, what is that? Is what is that in speed? It's about 100 and 
twenty miles an hour, one hundred and fifteen, something it's like moving that. pretty yeah. quick. Yeah, and, and you're and you're trying to not get spotted. You're trying to not get hit. But like they're going like 60, 60 knots. Well, and they were they point. were surprised to see that it had like kind of turned into this urban development versus what they thought was going to be like yeah. desolate desert land. You yeah. know. Oh, and then the lights. The lights they well, kicked, that's, then that seemed like it was a yeah. tactic on the Iraqi Republican Guard, no, like, right? That, like that was an unforeseen, I'm sure, outcome. But like part of that reason is they talked about how they got squeezed into one little mission. Right, like a little... Yeah. They planned on going through the desert and coming around. Oh, I see. Unfortunately, they got bracketed. Time didn't allow. Directly over the city. That's interesting. That was wild, man. And then when the lights go out, that's... how hard was it? How hard is it to see your fellow Apache uh, pilots? Because they at one part, aircraft? yeah, they were like full of confusion at yeah, that one point. If you're not watching them all the time, you lose track of them fast. I've, I mean. There's so many times where yeah. I've, I've seen a huge aircraft blow up in my FLIR and like, oh, and you oh. just dive the aircraft around them. It, now, is the FLIR, fast. is that like the full? It's infrared? No, so it's, it's the sight on the front of the aircraft. So when you look okay. at the, when you look at the, the front the seat, in front of him, there's, there's two little bubbles. One, one moves and the other one moves on top of it separately. Um, and the one on the bottom does all the laser designating. It, it's primarily for the front seat. The one on top is called the pilot night vision system. So it's attached to his helmet. So you're flying around in the back seat with a with with your eyeball, your right eyeball, which is three feet below you and ten feet in front of you. So it's like a that's, what? That's yeah. weird. That seems yeah. very disorienting. It is. And so we we teach it. Uh, when I became a flight instructor, my, one of my first students in what's called the bag. It's daytime flying, so I'm sitting in the front seat with no. I mean, looking out across the landscape, no problems. My backseater is a student, and he's completely blacked out in the cockpit. We put a we put a black curtain around his entire cockpit, oh. so he can't see outside at all. So he has to fly off the FLIR. Interesting. Oh, man. And so when you turn your head to look at something, like if I turn my head 90 degrees to the right, I'm thinking I'm looking 90 degrees where my head is, but the sight, again, is 10 feet in front of you, and you need to turn more than 90 degrees to make sure it gets over to look at it. So that's similar oh to, like, God. night vision I, goggles. I mean, I've had students throwing up. I've had students waking that up. or you know, really Passing wild. out. I had a student go blind in the cockpit because of stress. I mean, wow. Was, he went blind? Went blind. Permanently? No. Ter- yeah. Temporarily. <laughs> oh, my God. This that's was during insane. the daytime. And uh, and he was flying just in the back seat. We're doing traffic pattern work and doing emergency procedures. And he's you know moving a power lever and we're just controlling the engine. And all of a sudden, I hear this, uh, "Hey, sir, uh, I can't see." And I'm like, "What? What can't you see, man? What? What's going on here?" And I'm just looking around. And I got my yeah. hands next to the controls. And he goes, "No, no, At I can't. All? I can't see." Home. I'm like, what's is there something in your eyeball? And we're still flying, still trucking along. And I'm like, I have controls. Uh, <laughs> so that's why you need such good eyesight in order to fly. Yeah, this. It's, well, it, it's you have to train your right eyeball to look kind of focused separately than your left. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. You ever heard of uh, Jimmy Smith, an old World War II pilot? He flew blind for 14 <laughs> years, 42 <laughs> missions. He was the only blind pilot to reach ace status. <laughs> Whole cockpit with braille all over. He could sing it, feel it by the wind. He could smell the enemy. Yeah, so that's Pitbull shirt just, uh, he just told me it's the forward looking infrared radar. Wow. Thank yeah, you. He gets shirt. Pitbull shirt. He's oh, also man. been watching Wild Wild Country, which is a good choice. Yeah, if that you is. haven't seen it. That is a good choice. So, okay, so. Uh, well, how'd you get into. How, how does one become an Apache pilot? So, in case I might. Yeah. Know, just want to kind of yeah, so check for it out. My, my particular story is I was. Uh, I just graduated college. My brother in law called me and he's like, hey, man, uh, I'm going to marry your sister and I'm joining the Army. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so then we we I heard talked to me like yeah so you program. followed him to the army to beat him for no. <laughs> I must be better than I gotta you. keep an eye on him that's what I gotta do I'm going undercover that's awesome so that's he not, uh, he's like there's a program where they'll they'll teach how to fly helicopters and I was like wait what and cool. he was like, they'll teach you how to fly they'll basic training warrant officer candidate school and then flight school and I was like 
bro, this sounds hot. Like, yeah. I mean it, man. And so we drove down to see them one time, and I saw the Apaches hovering around. I was like, that's that's unbelievable. That's the you one. Know? There was a part that was pretty interesting to me in the documentary where uh, they, no one cares what you think they were going to. <laughs> There was like a there was a nearby Blackhawk because they had come yeah. under some fire. The Blackhawk flew with them the whole time. Is that yeah, command and control aircraft? And yeah. there was and so there. Why was, a Blackhawk? Why not an Apache? It's because the the back uh, and, and where they normally carry passengers, they it's can like put extra room. radios and they can they, usually the commander will, will sit back there and kind nice. of direct the battle. And that was that was what was interesting about that. So they they were planning on the spot basically an emergency landing. <laughs> yes, they were going to pull a pilot, a front seater, out of an Apache. And then this colonel's just going to jump in out of the Blackhawk. He's like, I got it. Just, you know, like, I was blown away by that. I mean, does, is that. I forget. Like I don't like know if he was one of the. If he was the battalion commander of the Apache unit. So right. he's probably trained in how to fly it. Right, okay. His I job was to basically direct all of his companies to the battle. And they would, they did that from the Blackhawk in the back. Okay, that yeah. makes perfect okay. sense. Okay, he did the same thing with Ground So it wasn't like yeah. he was flying the Blackhawk and he's yeah. like, here, I trade these. You know? yeah. ground, ground guys, if they're, if they're in, a, in a big convoy, the commander will be in a separate. Sure. You know, I, fly, I drive a big diesel truck uh, at home. I can handle an Apache. I can handle a little flippity dude. You know, I drive a Ford. I think about it. that though is that it's the opposite. So like, if, if there's something I don't know how to do, people will be like, "Come on, man, you can fly an Apache. But <laughs> yeah. You can't. You can't wire up a '57 Chevy." And I'm like, "No, <laughs> no? I can't. Yeah, I could you know? with some training, I guess." Yeah, I'm like, "Show me the book. Show me how to do it." But they're like, "You can. You can fly an Apache. You could." Wrestle that steer to the ground. So were you eighteen? <laughs> no, I was. <laughs> seems like a non sequitur. Exactly, and but that's I how it worked over it. But that's how it works. No, I, yeah, I get it. I mean, honestly, I thought you could yeah. jump over this building after <laughs> yeah. I watched that documentary. So. Well, his shirt is off now, which yeah. I thought well, was weird. Kind of weird. I gotta be in the news. Yeah, he's definitely an alpha and yeah. has clearly established dominance in this room. room. I'm <laughs> under the table. Feels <laughs> really good. So, how old were you when you joined? I joined at twenty three. Okay, and then how long is Warrant officer, officer. So school. basic training is nine weeks, and uh, I started in July of two thousand one. Nine eleven happened two weeks before graduation. Wow! Which changed change all the pretty plans. much everything. A little bit off, yeah. <laughs> That's a little more. You were going to be in Guam. Things got a little a little more serious after that. Don't ever see. touch my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> see, I had a couple of years to stew on it. You yeah, know? I was like, ah, yeah, I'm really maybe mad for a couple play. of years, and maybe now I can go. You know, yeah. But not yeah. Like we were right like, away. well, we're, we're already at war. All right, man. Okay, and the, in the documentary, there's a guy who comes from West Point. Yeah. What's the relationship between people who come from West Point and, you know, like the, the common officer. man? So our, our, like the ranks are like uh, – so warrant officers are kind of in the middle. So the enlisted rank goes from private to sergeant major. And the commission guys start at lieutenant all the way through general. And a commission guy means it, they went to West Point or something? Either ROTC degree. or West okay. Point, yeah. And West Point is kind of uh, – it's the service academy for the Army. So uh, you have to be congressionally appointed to go there, and it's, it's pretty competitive to get in. Yeah. Uh, same thing with I Naval Academy in. and all that stuff. So it, it's, you know, they, they come out not better. I don't know. It's hard. Some people get offended by that. But not to say they're better trained, but they they certainly spent Maybe four more years. thoroughly. Yeah. yeah. They spent more in a rigid, rigid environment than average college. That makes a little sense. It's, it's yeah. like the kids that are great at high school basketball that go to the private schools that can yeah. just play basketball all the time. It's exactly like that. 
but some of them what? come out of West Point as no. a lieutenant, like 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 they're George Patton. Sure, oh, are yeah. those my men? And you're like, oh, okay, yeah. come on. Yeah, that's what right. I would assume. I just sit lieutenant guys. Yeah, we've been we've been sweating in the desert yeah. taking fire for a while while uh, you were in that class. Here to take lieutenant. command. You're like, all right, man. We'll catch you tomorrow. That's you know. what I wonder if yeah. that dynamic ever. You know, they learned. They learned eventually to kind of put their head down and kind of just. Yeah, learn, I went to a different school to do this different thing that you can't do. So if you would just not talk to me, that would be well. It's funny. It happens. You know, I remember my dad being like, "Who's young hot shot? You know, kid coming out in the grocery business, yeah. trying to take my lane and stuff." And I'm like, "Dad, you know, you just gotta, you know, get get after it. Just get after it." And I'm like, "That's the grocery business. Imagine somebody trying to come tell you what to do in the army. Like, okay, buddy, yeah. sure, Finish I'll listen you. to you." <laughs> <laughs> I had a few of those. Non-commissioned yeah. officers are the backbone of the army. That's right. Oh yeah. That's, All that's right. True. That's from the three one four. I think I know who it is, and I'm not giving him a shout out. I would, yeah, I would like, yeah, I would like to think that that you know, but you, it takes a it's a different breed, I guess, is wants to go to college for you know four years of that instead of four years of Mizzou. When, uh, keep in keep in mind, like the ROTC students, they they go through the whole four years, and then at the end, they find out what they're going to get as far as branch of the army goes or branch of the military. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why my yeah. brother, he went to basic training and AIT first for engineering. Then he went to college, did the whole ROTC thing, and then graduated. So he did the enlisted, and then he went commissioned. Yeah. So wow. I had everybody his, his people had a little bit more respect for him because yeah. he had been yeah. there, done that type of thing. Gotcha. But now, it's a toss-up for ROTC students, though. And even West Pointers aren't guaranteed their branch of, of Wow. Of I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, there was actually two kids. My, my sister, when she graduated from high school, there were two twins in her class. Both of them got accepted. Twinsies. Got accepted in the Naval Academy out of Kickapoo. It was pretty cool. Wow. We had a kid that was two years behind me that went to the Naval, Kitty, Naval Academy. Out of Naval Kitty? Naval Kitty. <laughs> that sounds, <laughs> Naval Kitty. <laughs> That's what we need to send to go get Kim hey, Jong-un. Hey, did you go do Naval Kitty. training at Naval Kitty? That sounds Kitty? like the coolest gay bar ever. <laughs> <laughs> we're going there ever. Naval Kitty. <laughs> uh, Post Hoosier Sophisticate <laughs> Show will be at Naval Kitty. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you So you were Army? Yeah. Okay, yeah. what, Air Force? Why aren't they flying Apaches? Am I just a uh, They don't noob? really do. So the Army. They don't, do ah, they they don't, choppers, they don't really do, they? do much yeah, anything. They have, they have and the Air Force is a branch of the Army, so that's part of it. It right? used to be. Yeah. yeah. We used to own them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They they gave, you gave them too much free. You give them an inch, they, they take them off. off you know, they want to do their own thing. They're yeah. the ones that flies in oh, and out of. Army's not yeah. good enough for you, fly boy. Okay, fine. Go have your own little party. I always wanted to wear that jet suit. What kind yeah. of suit you wearing in that Apache? Kind of like a, uh, a flight suit? The Iron Man suit. Just <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> you're near, you're, you're your platoon is painted. Your body suit is painted in camouflage. <laughs> that would be great. So you, wear, you wear Nomex, which is fire retardant material. Hey, watch your mouth on the show. We're kind of 2018. Uh, we don't talk like Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's, I mean, yeah. I could just imagine you in one of those suits, and I'm just, I'm just going to stay. And then you make Craig you handle the rest of this interview. Well, actually, uh, I'm, I could talk to you for hours about this. I don't know how much you can divulge. I will say one last thing we we're kind of talking about, without giving too much away, uh, they, they do, obviously, they came under fire. They had to land a few points. When they got those choppers back, they look like hamburger meat, yeah. and it was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. how, I mean, how much ground they covered with something that should not be uh, flyable. Yeah. It, would, it would appear, you know, there's holes all over it. How do you how do you keep the air underneath you? I was just blown away by that, and I thought it was pretty cool that they each person in the company in that cavalry unit uh, uh, wrote letters to Boeing yeah. to tell them how. How appreciative they were of the of the work that went into that. Yeah, Boeing going. has Those saved really my cool. life. I don't know how many times, just from engineering standpoint, and you know the things that's they put the awesome. aircraft through, and 
the things that the aircraft has done. There's one, one mission we're at night and ran out of oil in our transmission. Wow. Uh, blew a filter out. Something happened. A filter blew out of the transmission. We spurted oil all the way down the back of the aircraft. And so we're flying around in the, in the dark at night, no moon, over the worst part of Iraq you can be in. And, uh, I didn't know there was and my, part. My, yeah. People on the ground are like, well, it, yeah. oil is so bountiful, it so, rains here? Just yeah. land down and get some. So this thing happened, lights started going off, we had a couple of little caution lights come on, and I remembered like a few days earlier, they were like, yeah, somebody dropped off a duffel bag full of heads at the front gate over mm-hmm. here. And I was like, okay, we're not going to land. We're not going to land at all. We're going to keep trucking. Oh, so it's the, the it's it's an amazing aircraft. The transmission, the Apache. I mean, one or two, it's expected. Yeah. With a bag of them. <laughs> yeah. What are you, Joe like, Pesci? Are you Joe Pesci with seven heads hey, in a duffel bag? What are you compensating yeah. for, pal? <laughs> what's in the bag? Yeah, what's yeah. what's box? in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? <laughs> it's a, so, I'm pretty good at that. It's, wow. it's an amazing aircraft. The, the the transmission itself is running at three thousand RPM or and, something like that. And Craig's not even you undersold what shape the oh, uh, plane shoot up. Yeah, and, well, and that chopper. I don't, yeah. You just gotta go watch Apache Warrior just to get a taste of what some real people are experiencing in real situations that are real yeah. easy for us to be disconnected from because we've got a little box in our living room that tells us how the world is. There's a whole other world going on out there, and there's some crazy stuff going down and there. Boeing so. did a heck of a job designing a, such a survivable aircraft. That's amazing. We're going to get them on as a sponsor. Yeah, stuff, actually, yeah. they are our new official sponsor. <laughs> yeah. um, really uh, big gonna, into, that's a cost, big sponsor. A little bit of money. <laughs> Real yeah, big into them. The, yeah. It cost them some money. Craig, should we blow out of this place? Yeah, hey, listen, yeah. listen. I got guys, a few announcements. But. We had a lot of fun. We had Matt Reeser in, and I, Matt, you can come in here anytime. And come and Let's talk not to get I, crazy. Well, you've got me handcuffed to this chair. I don't think I can. <laughs> well, you can stay here as long as you want. <laughs> we are going to, uh, coming up after the break, uh, we're going to have our interview again with George Christie. We're going to replay that because we're going to head out to the Playhouse in Westport. And we're going to go see his one-man show, Outlaw. It's tonight uh, at 8 o'clock and also tomorrow. You should go check it out, man. The, for the Well, listen to the interview we had at 7.30. It, the guy is pretty captivating. He's great. He, he's, I'm, I'm really interested to meet him. I think he's going to be going to have some pretty great stories. He's tonight, got Pee Wee's so. bike, and he's got Pee Wee's bike. He doesn't say, you know, he, he hasn't didn't say no names. No names. He didn't I'm say putting that. it out there. Steve, Steve Elgin is at war with the Hell's Angels, <laughs> and if he doesn't yeah. have that bike tonight, he's going to have some trouble. Okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 put it sure that is. way. Okay. Uh, so I got, coming I got up, a few announcements. So fine. Uh, Missouri uh, inaugural Missouri <laughs> Medical Cannabis Conference. It's going. To be huge. You hear us talking about this stuff. You're getting your information from us. <laughs> what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> You're fools. Everyone's fools. We got a radio. Who <laughs> needs a radio? A two-day patient-focused event on all things cannabis at the Embassy Suites in St. Charles, Missouri, on the 27th and 28th of October. Get your tickets online at mocannacon.com. That's M-O-C-A-N-N-A-C-O-N. Dot com. It's going to sell out. It will. There's 300 tickets available. Some of them are already gone. And what it's going to allow people to do is, A, it's going to allow patients to really ask the tough questions that maybe they can't ask their doctor about. I don't think they can. I don't know if doctors in well, Missouri most doctors can't can give say. Any kind of um, so you're going to be able to ask these people all of the questions you want to. Um, please go to the website. Check it out. And even if you want to get involved in the cannabis community in St. Louis and Missouri and help facilitate change, and the effect, efficacy of cannabis, hey, guess what? Buy those tickets, mocannacon.com. 
This uh, second hour, since we're not going to be able to tell you again, is brought to you by Lifetime STL, Lifetime Roofing and Renovation. Give them a call, 314-800-0426. Roof, roof. Roof, roofing. And it's also brought to you by the Missouri Medical Cannabis Company, MoMedCanco.com. Best CBD in the land. We're getting just everybody that's actually taken it uh, It has has been. Were you worried? Not at all. I know. I was a little bit. I was like, what if it doesn't work for people? And then we're the well, feedback. Because, I'm like, woo. Because I'm always very careful to say, you know, I don't know if it's going to work for you. You may need a full spectrum medicine. It might not yes. be your thing. It's, it's going to metabolize different with every single different person. So, But yep. it's worth a shot. You can't hurt yourself with it. Give yourself a shot. I don't know if I should say that, but I know you can't. I watched a, a, an older Jewish gentleman drink a whole bottle of He it wasn't that old. Us. That veteran who went and was just downing the bottles of yeah, THC. He had full spectrum. The yeah. full play. He's like, hey, do that with the pills. He's running around drinking wow. bottle he after bottle. He was probably stony baloney. It, oh, if you think? It was awesome. <laughs> the guy's great. He's my hero. All right, guys. We're going to jump to break. Uh, we're going to see you next week live. Stick around for this George Christie interview. This is Craig Kohler. That's Steve Elgin. We've got Matt Reeser in the studio. Roman new and steve's lovely wife jen elgin and we got our boy integrity on the board it's going to take you home we'll see you guys next week bye weirdo love you st louis night night the fcc an appointed body not elected answerable only to the president decided on its own that radio and television were the only two parts of american life not protected by the first amendment to the constitution why did they decide that because they got a letter from a minister in Mississippi. A Reverend Donald Wildman in Mississippi heard something on the radio that he didn't like. Well, Reverend, did anyone ever tell you there are two knobs on the radio? But hey, Reverend, there are two knobs on the radio. One of them turns the radio off, and the other one changes the station. Imagine that, Reverend, you can actually change the station. Welcome back to Hoosier Sophisticate. Hi. What's going on, Steve? Oh, man. I'm just, listen, every time I come in here, I feel more and more fired up to do good things, to help out St. Louis. Even though I'm a big piece of crap, I, we just try to do what we can, right? I just like to reach out. I like to hear different voices from all, all over the place. Ew. I know. <laughs> I know. This I is like an to echo see, chamber, see what son. I can do by reaching out and see what kind of voices I can really pull out of people. Hey, on That's the cool. phone, we have... An extremely high-ranking member, former high-ranking member of the uh, Hells Angels. I think he was the founder of the Ventura, Cap- Ventura yeah. chapter. Um, he's an author. He's got a one-man show uh, in Westport uh, on the 29th and 30th here in St. Louis. We're going to give away a couple of tickets to any of our uh, guests that have any kind of talent at all and can make us laugh. <laughs> we got George Christie on the line. George, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Hey, we're doing well, man. We're doing well. Thanks for joining us. So, George, uh, what... what uh, what makes a guy decide he wants to, to join an MC and, and, and live the, the quote-unquote outlaw life? Well, you know, are you familiar with uh, how the whole outlaw bike uh, culture started? No, no give, give us a little rundown synopsis. on that. Yeah. Well, when the uh, veterans came back from the European and Pacific theaters in World War II, they came home, they were somewhat displaced, probably some of them suffered from undiagnosed PTSD, they didn't call it that back then. And they started forming these little clubs, uh, I guess, after all that action uh, in combat and whatnot, coming home and not feeling like they really fit in, 
all these little small bike clubs started springing up. And the American Motorcycle Association uh, deemed them the 1% that ruined it for the wholesome riders. And these guys loved that title, and they started calling themselves the one percenters. So the uh, Booze Fighters, the Galloping Goose, the Pooh Bobs, uh, then the Hells Angels, they all became the one percent clubs. And that was really the birth of uh, the outlaw bike culture. It really started in 1947 when the San Francisco Chronicle showed up in Hollister, California at one of these rallies. And they took a bunch of pictures and put it out over the wire and wrote a picture how these guys wrote a story about how these guys took over the town. It was kind of a lot of myth, uh, uh, more myth than fact. But you know, it picked uh, up uh, momentum and people kind of wrapped their arms around it, and kind of a new American myth was created. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, now. <clears throat> I'm uh, obviously a tough guy. Uh, <laughs> everyone in the studio and all our listeners know that. Um, so when, when exactly did you start your uh, your, your reign with the uh, Hells Angels? Well, I, 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 when I came back from the Marine Corps in 1966, I bought a motorcycle, and I started hanging out with a little club called the Question Marks, which ultimately most of the people from the Question Marks became Hells Angels. They introduced me to the Saint and Slaves, which were a club out of San Fernando Valley, who also became Hells Angels. And then the Saint and Slaves introduced me to the actual Los Angeles Hells Angels. And uh, in the mid-70s, I became a member. And uh, after a short time, I became the vice president, president and then later the president. And then in 1978, I decided I wanted to start a charter in Ventura, California. So I handpicked... Uh, you know, half a dozen guys, and we moved up to Ventura, and, you know, we were up there, and I was the leader up there from 1978 to 2011 when I walked away. Now, Georgia, at one point, the Rolling Stones actually owed money to the Hells Angels, and uh, from what I understand, you were <laughs> instrumental in uh, getting them to uh, pay that debt. Can you uh, kind of dive into that? Tell well, us. well, I, you know, I don't know if I was instrumental, but I certainly was, you know, part of the team that... Uh, convinced them that they should pay the uh, money they owed us. The money was for Alan Pizarro's defense. He had uh, been at Altamont, and, you know, Meredith Hunter had pointed a gun at the stage, and, you know, Alan uh, and him had a confrontation. Alan stabbed him, and, you know, he ultimately succumbed to the stab wound. And we went to trial to defend Alan, who was acquitted of you know, the homicide uh, it was justifiable homicide. And uh, the Stones didn't want to pay the bill, so we had to do a little uh, convincing uh, that <laughs> it was for their best interest to pay the bill. And, oh, uh, wow. He, put, putting a strong arm on Keith and Mick. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't Keith so much. It was Mick. You know, Keith said, you know, pay those dirty guys. Man. We don't want to have them. And then Mick didn't, Mick didn't want to pay. You know, he said, I'm not going to pay him. Uh, that's so, so Mick. Uh, <laughs> so, so it, is, it is so Mick, isn't it? Uh, I'm a huge uh, Stones fan. Now, did you get to hang, ar- hang around with the Stones? Like, uh, well, yeah, they were right. best buds Keith after that. Well, I mean, you know, have, you never know. Keith Richard and I, you know, had run across uh, each other's paths. Him and I were in a, new, a magazine article together one time uh, about the 50 most notorious outlaws in the world and you know he was on the cover 
And, uh, you know, they interviewed myself, uh, Keith, Mickey Rourke, uh, you know, all these different uh, people that were kind of into motorcycling and alternative lifestyles at the time. And, uh, you know, Keith's a pretty good guy. I don't know about Mick because I never got close to him because uh, he didn't want to pay the money. So I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, create a friendship with him because we didn't know what was going to happen. Hard, sure, that makes sense. Hard to create a friendship when you got him in a headlock. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was giving him head noogies. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So obviously, this uh, this brought you all kinds of celebrities across your path. How do you know Joan Jett? Well, I, I've met Joan over the years, and we were doing a benefit uh, at the Limelight back in New York. I guess I'm assuming you saw that picture of Joan and I and yeah. uh, <laughs> circulating around the magazines and whatnot. So we were just backstage uh, cutting it up, and there was you know, a lot of press there. And they said, hey, why don't you guys go out and take a picture together? And, you know, we did, and uh, it kind of circulated all over the United States. And you know what? Joan Jett's uh, not only a good rock and roll uh, uh, roller, she's a really good person. She's very humble and uh, no you know, pretense to uh, her whatsoever. A really great uh, woman. Well, you know what they say about Joan Jett. Joan Jett pays her debts. And that's one thing you like <laughs> about does. Joan Jett. That's one thing. Um, all right. Well, how were the Hells Angels um, like viewed? When they first came around, were they like, "Oh, these these are crazy bikers. These are you know like we were worried about them." Were you guys like on uh, on the feds radar or any of that stuff? Well, you know what, I butted head personally with the feds uh, several times. You know, I they made accusations in the 1984 Olympics that we were going to somehow uh, create problems and possibly. Uh, uh, support any terrorist activities that were going to tra- take place. And me being a veteran, and I had also worked for the Department of Defense for almost 10 years, and that really didn't sit right with me. And I came up with this idea that not only would we support the Olympics, but we'd participate. And what I did is I wound up carrying the torch in the Olympic torch relay uh, to show the Hells Angels uh, patriotism and support the uh, uh, for the Olympics. So, you know, we were going back and forth with them. Uh, I wound up getting indicted in 1986, and uh, I beat the case. I uh, was feeling pretty uh, uh, spunky at the time. Uh, you know, I had beat the federal government. I mean, they have a 98% conviction rate, and we proved that uh, what they were saying was absolutely false. So, uh, I love it. It was good publicity for us. Well, and I have just a little bit of experience. I, I used to do some some work on motorcycles, do some paint protection. I traveled around to different rallies and things like that with, uh, I would say, clubs that maybe didn't see eye to eye with uh, the Hell's Angels. I, I I went to a Bandito's rally one time. Uh, there was all kinds of sure. different clubs there. Um, but one thing I did notice, um, I mean, as as hard as these guys might look, man, uh, they're always helping kids charities or local local events. You know. Um, is that is that something that's as a club, absolute. you know, that you guys did well, did on purpose or did did with uh, in mind of that, you know? I, I think that you know, law enforcement, of course, alleged that we did that for publicity and to, you know, polish up our image. But that wasn't the case at all. You know, the Hell's Angels started the uh, uh, 
uh, original toy run in Los Angeles uh, to Griffith Park. Uh, this was back in the 70s. And, you know, like up in Ventura, we gave a lot of money to uh, the Red Cross, uh, Toys for Tots, uh, you know, the uh, Salvation Army, Goldwing's Children Museum. And, you know, these were things that we did. We didn't go out and publicize it. We did it because we wanted to help the kids. And, uh, you know, some of it got noticed, some of it didn't. But, you know, we really didn't care because our agenda wasn't to project this to the public. Our agenda was to help the the kids and the people that, uh, you know, we were assisting somehow. So I, I guess uh, you're probably you, you were kind of the face of the of the Hell's Angels there for a while the the, the publicity man. Um, what, what was your relationship like with Sonny Barger, who's pretty well known as uh, maybe the leader of, of the Hell's Angels uh, for the long time? And um, and I think you guys were probably buds for a while, and then maybe you guys went separate ways. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I can. Yeah, uh, Sonny, uh, you know, went to prison in the seventies, and when I got in the club, by the time he had come back. I had uh, uh, pretty much established myself as a leader, and Sonny and I hit it off. We had a lot of the same ideas, and uh, we had a good relationship. He got cancer uh, in 1983, I can't remember the exact date, and he wound up uh, having his uh, vocal box cut out, his larynx and everything. And, you know, he didn't think he was going to make it, and he basically kind of turned over all the uh, media uh, liaison work, and not only with the media, but with other bike clubs and with law enforcement. And uh, he reached a point in time when he realized, and so did everybody else, that he was just too tough to die. (laughs) Uh, And he wanted his control back. And uh, so him and I wound up uh, having different visions for the club. And, you know, at first it was a friendly rivalry, and then, you know, later it uh, became somewhat bitter, uh, maybe the last five years uh, in the club. You know, I left in 2011, probably from, you know, 2006 or so. Uh, you know, we weren't on the best of terms. But, uh, you know, he had one vision for the club. I had another. We had different leadership styles. So uh, I get, you know, there's kind of a, a code of ethics there, right? Um, you, you when there's kind of a, a right way of going about leaving the club. Um, so were you Correct. were you out good? Well, no, I I actually I went to the meeting. I told everybody why I was leaving. That you know they no longer shared my vision. Uh, we were having conflicts with every bike club in the in the, in the world just about at the time. And I had been on this peace mission. And you know you mentioned the banditos uh, earlier, but I had negotiated with the banditos, the outlaws, the Mongols, the pagans, the sons of silence. Anytime we had a conflict, I was the guy they'd send in to go to the table with them. And. Uh, I reached a point in time when I just I told everybody, you guys don't share my vision, and it's time for me to move on. I think I can do more good for the outlaw bike culture uh, by myself, uh, doing my own thing. And everybody was okay at first, and it turned into uh, it's like a bad divorce. Uh, <laughs> about three weeks later, Sonny uh, decided he didn't want anybody talking to me, and uh, he basically blackballed anybody from uh, interacting with me. And uh, so, you know, that's basically my status now. You know, I went on to do the History Channel, uh, Outlaw Chronicles. I wrote a couple of books, and, you know, I appear on CNN uh, and whatnot. Anytime there's some sort of situation with the outlaw bike culture, as that shootout in Waco where those nine guys got killed. Uh, And 
you know, I've continued with my life. And, you know, I have no animosity towards him or the club. But, uh, you know, I have my own goals and uh, things I want to achieve for the outlaw bike culture. And, you know, my big missing always was I thought all the clubs should get along. It didn't make any sense to me why we would have conflicts with people that we had the exact same interest with. It just didn't make any sense. Now, George, you were friends with Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. you got to have some cool stories about hanging out with Jerry Garcia. <laughs> yeah, you know, Jerry Garcia, I, I got introduced to the Grateful Dead uh, by a member up in the Bay Area. And uh, the, my relationship grew and grew, and I became good friends with Rock Scully, their manager, and then members of the band. And then Jerry and I really hit it off in the... Uh, yeah, I got some pretty wild stories about Jerry. He, uh, uh, you know, he got a lot of heat for his friendship with the club because a lot of the people up there in the counterculture, you know, felt that uh, the Hell's Angels uh, were always uh, ready to take things to the extreme measure, of, you know, through violence or whatever, intimidation. And he got a lot of heat, and he told me one time, him and I got in a long discussion about it one time, and I said, hey, Jerry, man, you've been taking a lot of heat. Uh, and he goes, yeah, I know. He goes, but you know, George, he goes, I like you guys because you can be violent, but you guys are upfront about it. And then he added, he smiled and looked at me. He goes, that's why I'm always on my best behavior around you. <laughs> yeah. So he talked to me. He, he, he was... <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. Uh, Don't make him mad. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, when when the Stones called uh, the Grateful Dead and said, "Hey, you know, we're going to have this party. We want to have a free concert. Who should we have do security?" Well, we used to do security for the Dead and the Airplane and Big Brother and whatnot. Janis Joplin was going out with Chocolate George, who was a Frisco member. So, you know, we were like a, a, a whole crew up there integrated together. And so they said, yeah, talk to the Hells Angels. And, you know, usually the things we did were in Golden Gate Park or at a clubhouse or something smaller. And this thing in Altamont just transcended into this, you know, I don't know how many people were there, 60, 70,000 people. I mean, it just got out of hand. You're also buddies with Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, uh, the guys in ZZ sure. Top. Sure, Willie. You guys kind of know them all, huh? Willie, Billy, Chris Christopherson. And i got to tell you, the only time I've ever been at a loss for words, Willie introduced me to Johnny Cash. Oh, and, wow. uh, man. Now, that's an imposing uh, gentleman, and he is a gentleman. Uh, you know, we had a, a very gentle, uh, he has a gentle, you know, he has that loud voice, but he's very gentle when he talks, and... You know, we had a dialogue for about 45 minutes, but I he did most of the talking and I did the listening because, you know, the guy's, he's a living, well, he was a living legend, you know, and now he's, you know, transcended into something beyond that. But, you know, being a Hells Angels opened the doors for me to meeting a lot of people in the movie industry, uh, the music industry. You know, Mickey Rourke was making a movie with Bob Dylan, and you know, I got to spend uh, an evening with Bob Dylan. Uh, which uh, was really uh, exciting for me because I've always been a big Dylan fan. But, you know, all you meet all these guys, Merle Haggard. Uh, I just uh, could go on and on and on. You know, like I said, my, my son, uh, Little George, when he was a little kid, was in that ZZ Top car when they were filming that uh, ZZ Top song, uh, Legs. 
that little red, uh, remember the little roadster they had? Yeah. Oh, you guys might be too young. No, I remember. Oh, totally. no, it's iconic. Is that too young? I don't think so. <laughs> you, 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 you guys have Billy Gibbons right in the studio? <laughs> <laughs> that was him. Yeah, he hasn't gotten around to his question yet, but he's here. <laughs> We had a uh, we had a uh, one of our listeners uh, messaged in and, they, and he said you know the it seems like the Hell's Angels are usually shown in a negative and scary light a lot of times but what's something that you've personally experienced the Hell's Angels did to better humanity and, and reach out to people in need? Well, you know, like I said, the Hell's Angels have done a lot of stuff for Toys for Tots. Uh, you know, there was a, a time when uh, myself as you know, the leader of the Hells Angels, there was a uh, a war in Scandinavia with the Banditos. And, uh, you know, the Hells Angels in Texas and in Washington, uh, George Weggers and myself really went uh, all out to put a stop to that war because we were worried about the collateral damage. It was escalating and escalating. Uh, people were shooting rockets into each other's clubhouses. And, uh, you know, if that's not a uh, something that was, you know, charitable for people. But, you know, we had uh, the collateral damage of, uh, you know, civilians getting hurt and whatnot. And, you know, the guys really went out on uh, a limb. The Scandinavian government petitioned the uh, United States government to bring over uh, a bandito and a Hells Angel from Europe so we could negotiate the peace terms here on uh, United States soil. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> I know. Wow. Yeah, not to mention they were helping out the rocket economy. So, yeah. so you got that going. We were. <laughs> hey, that's how we settle things on radio stations, too, AM in St. Louis. You shoot a couple rockets in the other guy's studio, let them know right. what's going on, all right? Uh, well, you get, definitely get their attention, and your, your ratings will go up. <laughs> You're darn right. You know, uh, for for several years, um, uh, Sons of Anarchy took off, and it was in the it was really popular among a lot of people. I think it romanticized it a little bit. Was is, was that very accurate? Was that was that a pretty accurate depiction of the lifestyle? Well, the, you know, some of it was, some of it wasn't. I mean, uh, Kurt Sutter tapped into uh, you know this myth of the outlaw biker. And it really caught wildfire. You know, the United States always always has a had a love for outlaws, whether they be Western outlaws. Uh, you know, uh, whether you like these people or you know think they were a benefit to society, but like John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, oh, yeah. America's always had a romance with outlaws. We're from and Missouri. He Jesse tapped James. into that. <laughs> yep, Jesse James. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jesse James. Uh, you know, White Earp was a sheriff, but he certainly was on a rampage uh, of revenge. You know, there at the end of his tenure as a sheriff. So you know, he was a bit of an outlaw himself. Billy the Kid. You know, uh, Wild Bill Hickok. So Kurt Sutter tapped into that. But you know, the thing is. You know, like in one episode, you know, you might have four or five murders. And, you know, that doesn't happen in everyday life. Uh, uh, you know, another thing, a lot of times the leaders uh, don't have complete knowledge of what everybody's doing in the club. And, you know, that was been a problem for me. You know, my oldest daughter is also my criminal lawyer. And, Perfect. uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, best money. investment I ever made. <laughs> Darn right. Uh, done cost she me ever money. you, Bill? <laughs> uh, no, well, she hasn't as yet, but I'm sure I'm going to get one one of these days. But, I, you know, uh, she, you know, when we, the last trial I, I had in 2011, one of the questions to the jury was, 
Do you believe that Sons of Anarchy is an accurate description of the outlaw motorcycle uh, lifestyle? And, you know, the judge, after the judge got so frustrated because just about every juror we talked to said, well, yeah, it's, I saw it on TV. It has to be real. Yeah. And, you know, the, the judge finally said, you know, this is a dr- dramatic show written by script writers as entertainment. And he goes, you can't confuse reality with this dramatic series that's on TV. So, you know, it creates, it creates a problem for the actual, you know, outlaw bike rider because depending on how the uh, viewer perceives and, you know, takes in all this information and then uh, processes, it, processes it in his brain uh, as what's real and what's fiction. Along the, so, same, along the same lines as Craig's question, are you familiar with the movie uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I'm going to tell you. You know, those were actual Hell's Angels. Remember when he had wow, the car scene? Really? No. Uh, yeah, I remember We were that. talking about that before the show, actually. <laughs> and I, I've got to tell you. Now, I'm giving you some inside scoop here. Yeah. Nice. Pee-wee's bike disappeared off the set. For real? No, I'm not not pointing any fingers. I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. You got it. He's got the bike. That's what I'm picking up on. He's got the bike. Where are you? I'm going to fight like Francis. So it was was reality imitates art, I guess. Wow. It's more accurate than Sons of Anarchy, probably. (laughs) That's right. George, your show, yeah. uh, Outlaw, it's coming to St. Louis June 29th and 30th. We're going to be giving away some tickets. We hope to make it and come I'm on. I'm definitely and po- coming. Yeah, possibly I'm going. say hello. If, uh, and we'll get to uh, meet up, possibly. And uh, just tell I us, hope so. Yeah, awesome. Just tell us a little about the show, uh, how long you've been doing it, well, what, what can we expect? Well, the show is, is based on my book, Exile on Front Street, which is also anybody that's seen Outlaw Chronicles. It's kind of a live version of Outlaw Chronicles, but it focuses more on it starts with me uh, in a courtroom, and then I take the uh, audience to 1955 to the first Outlaw bike rider I ever saw. And from there, it goes in a linear line all the way uh, through my tenure in the club and all my experiences in the club. Uh, uh, you know, to uh, my decision to leave and why I left. It gets very in-depth. You know, it runs a couple of hours, hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes, depending on how long-winded I am. And, uh, you know, it's very personal. It's very intimate. It's a, it was a, you know, very cathartic for me because, I, you know, I kind of learned a lot about myself and uh, reflecting back on it, what prompted me uh, to follow uh, the path I did, you know, in my life. You know, you hear the old saying, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees because you're so deep into the moment. And, you know, now that I've stepped back, I, you know, I still consider myself an outlaw at heart. But, you know, I've, I've walked away from that lifestyle and I reflect on it. You know, now I write a lot of stuff and, uh, I've, you know, I've got a couple of books out. I got another book about halfway through. It's given me the opportunity to understand what motivated me to do some of the things I did. You know, I talk about my short, uh, I talk about my tenure in the uh, Department of Defense and what I did for the Department of Defense. I had a top-level security clearance. I was the one that took care of, there was a submarine surveillance uh, system off Southern California here uh, looking for Russian submarines during the Cold War. 
and my job was to help keep it up uh, so we had a direct line to Washington in case we ever came under attack. You know, I took care of that, and I, you know, I talk about that stuff. Uh, I've had a really interesting life, and I, you know, I want to share it. Uh, it's not a, uh, a, a promo, uh, you know, for the Hells Angels. It's about me, and it's about my personal experiences. Some of it's very positive. Some of it's, you know, it talks about negative things as well. You know, I wanted to give a real... Uh, a truthful experience of my life, and I want the audience to walk away with some insight into what uh, maybe the outlaw fight culture was really all about. George, we're kind of getting you. You're breaking up on us a little bit. I wanted to ask you one last question. I don't know if the timeline's crossed okay. over, but uh, it kind of you, you've written a couple of books. A book that I read, uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, it's actually called Hell's Angels. It's written by Hunter S. Thompson. Did you have any crossover with Hunter S. Thompson at all? If, with that, in, that I, in 1999, uh, I did a. Uh, you're gonna love this story. We'll close with this one. I, 1999, I did my first television, like large, long uh, appearance. I was on a. In Search of the Hells Angels, I was on there for an hour with Sonny Barger, and Hunter Thompson was on there as well. And, you know, I was kind of nervous, you know, Sonny was going to be on with me, and I knew Hunter Thompson was going to be on there. So I came very prepared, uh, rested, uh, nervous, and Hunter Thompson came uh, came into the uh, green room. Drank a uh, bottle of wild turkey, snorted a pile of cocaine, and, and got ready for camera. That's how Craig gets ready for this show. <laughs> that's just breakfast. That's just breakfast. And, that, and that's a true story, too. Oh, man. George, thank you so much for coming out here. We, we hope we can, uh, we can we get a whole crowd podcast. out there. Yeah, we'd love yeah. to get you on an Uncensored podcast sometime. Uh, can't wait to see you at your show on the 29th and the 30th at uh, – the Playhouse in Westport Plaza. We got a couple of tickets to give away to our listeners. Uh, George, looking forward to meeting you in a couple of weeks. And thanks again for all your time, man. Appreciate you. Okay, thanks, please, please stop by and come see me. You got you it, buddy. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That was unreal. You ever, you ever just hear I somebody he talking? Was, and you're like, I'm never going to be that cool. I, I think uh, he every was time on I sit next bike, to you. I, I think he was on his bike, actually, during that. I know. Actually, I wanted to say something none of us said. <laughs> there was not I, one of us was like, uh, hey, by the way, why don't you fix your phone? Bam! I said it sounded perfect. To I like, guys. I know. Oh, uh, actually, Integrity's like, hey, the Fed's got his phone tapped, dude. Just don't even say anything about it. <laughs> He's like, I know what that sound sounds like. <laughs> hey, we got an awesome guest coming up here in the uh, uh, 7 o'clock hour. hour. Is that where yeah, we'll lifetime roofing and renovation? 7 o'clock hour? Yes. All right. Presented by... Lifetime STL, but this past hour yeah, was, pre- was presented by James Carlton State Farm. Uh, when your insurance is costing you a leg and an arm? You need to call James Carlton State Farm. Go to carltoninsurance.net. He's one of the best humans I know. He's going to take care of you. He's going to take, take a comprehensive look at your coverage, make sure that everything is covered. Steve, we say it all the time. What would be the worst possible thing to happen? If your house burns down and then you find out mm. we're not sufficiently covered? Hey, I'm free at that point. Burn my house down. I'll go live in the mountains somewhere. Oh, we talk, we're talking about this read. Never mind. Sorry. I thought we were going. I was going off a tangent. Give James Carlton a shout. Yeah, he's the best. Everyone we talk to, before, I, before you get that number, everyone we talk to who's in business with him and has done business with him, raving, raving about Even other insurance is. agents. Yeah. We've, we've got other insurance buddies like, yeah. man, if James is taking care of you, you're in great hands. Totally. We, just today on the radio, they were talking about James Carlton on a different station. <laughs> 314-961-4800, carltoninsurance.net. Try and call him during business hours. Who are you going to talk to, Steve? 
You're not going to get a machine. Because if you do, we'll give you a sophisticated shirt. You're not going to get an AI machine on there. Maybe you will, though, because you can't tell. Not anymore. Not in 2018. We're going to jump to break. On the other side, we've got Mark Shanklin. He's going to tell us about uh, he had a little battle in the courts. Good show, Uh, man. Man, we got all kinds of good stuff. Steve was all Debbie Downer about it for the longest time. I I don't get to talk enough when these people are coming on here with the interviews. But then he realizes how cool these people are, and he's like, ah, I better just shut up and get in the corner. I mean, I think the people want a little more of me. I just, that's kind of the deal. I don't know. It's what Stroke started this ego. whole thing. I'm Craig Kohler. That's Steve. Roman's over here. Blake uh, came in. Seth's in the other room. We sure love you guys for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Love you, St. Louis. Be well, Hoosiers. Dreaming my life away.